Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 6 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm really excited to be bringing you this new season of shows coming to you on the first and third Wednesdays of every month. I have a great lineup of fascinating conversations with incredible musicians, songwriters, guitarists, steel guitarists, drummers, composers, who knows what else. I've been having an incredible time diving deep with these folks, and I know you're going to enjoy listening. Just a reminder that this year I've taken out the short song samples through the show, as things have gotten way more complicated as far as legal use of music goes, so I'll be making an accompanying Spotify playlist to each episode, which you'll find in the episode's show notes and at the website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. So anytime you hear this cute little slide guitar sound, you'll know there's a track to go along with it on the playlist. We have some new sponsors this year, but continue to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription. Patreon is a monthly payment of your choice, and when you sign up for that, you get a bit of added content as well as an ad-free version of the show to listen to. If you don't feel like kicking in any dough, that's cool too, but you can help by subscribing for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just spread the word by sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff, of course, at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, many thanks to our sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know that I sent you. They are Isotope, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, and Spectra 1964. Greetings, folks and music nerds, and welcome back to Season 6 of the show. This is episode number 125. Yep, 100 and a quarter. That's kind of exciting. Today, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who's been around music her entire life. She's an incredible singer, a songwriter, and just musician in general. But uh, only recently, she started releasing records under her own name, which is Amy Helm. Well, this summer has been punishingly hot here in Nashville, but still a great one. I've been recording a bunch in the new Henhouse studio and doing some gigs as well. And I'm excited to be heading up to the Edmonton Folk Festival in a couple of weeks and hope to see some of you there. I'll be with my band, which is Joaquin Cooter on drums, Jeremy Holmes on bass, and Daryl Havers on keyboards. It's always great to play with some pals, and that is a killer festival. So come say hi if you're there. So today's conversation is with the incredible Amy Helm. I've worked with uh, Amy a few times on the stage and in the studio as well. She was out with us for a while opening for Matt Anderson when I was leading his band just pre-pandemic, and I got to sit in with her every night. And man, can she sing, and her songs are killer, too. In case you don't know and didn't figure it out by her name, she is the daughter of Levon Helm, drummer and singer of the band. And let me tell you, the apple did not fall far from the tree. Amy has an incredibly natural feel for music, 
And she's got a really interesting story, too. She grew up in New York, partly in the city, and at various times with her dad in Woodstock. And she was around Levon's barn an awful lot. And she's seen that place go from its pretty humble beginnings to a mecca for Roots music. Hosting some of the greatest live shows of the early 2000s and on, they got to be known as the Midnight Ramble, and they'd bring in an all-star band from the area and New York City and put on shows with folks like Dr. John and Johnny Johnson and Elvis Costello, Phil Lesh, Alan Toussaint, Larry Campbell, and they would just put on these insane shows. I never went to it. I was never in the area, but I did get to play at the barn with Birds of Chicago a few years back, and I can tell you that that place is hallowed ground. Amy started a great band in the early 2000s called Ola Bell, and they did a ton of touring and recording and made some great records, too. When Levon got really sick with cancer around that time, too, Amy sort of reconnected with him and worked with him as he regained his speaking and eventually his singing voice, and she ended up producing his Grammy-winning Dirt Farmer album with Larry Campbell. And that's such an incredible album, and Amy was a huge part of bringing that to life. She's put out three solo records of her own, the most recent one we get to talk quite a bit about, and it's called What the Flood Leaves Behind. And it's really a masterful album. She just keeps getting better. We talked about the recording and writing process and just had a great old chin wag. So let's get into it. And oh, and you can get info on all of Amy's tour dates and albums at amyhelm.com. And before we get going, I'd just like to put a shout out to the following folks who made donations or signed up to the Patreon over the last couple of weeks. David Cooley, Ron Wagner, and Janice Simcoe. Many thanks to you guys. Could not do it without you. All right, let's get down to it. Enjoy my conversation with Amy Helm. Your emails con- uh, settled my nerves a little bit. <laughs> Are you terrified? <laughs> I'm terrified, I, you know, because I haven't done like... You know, you do like an album cycle and you do a thousand interviews and you start to get 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 your muscle memory with the language you want to use and the things you want to say. And I woke up this morning and I was like, Jesus, I have nothing to say. I got nothing to say. I got nothing to say about anything. <laughs> I, I'm not so sure about that. Well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do much in the way of like Zoom performance no. kind of thing? Okay. So I did two of them and I was like, never again. Oh yeah. Yeah. I did like, I was like, I found myself making, trying to make a lot of like a lot of jokes that landed so poorly just with me, myself and the space in the room, like not knowing yeah. how to occupy the distance between me and whoever was listening. I, I didn't felt it was very unnatural. Yeah, I found it kind of terrifying too. I did a bunch with JT and Ali over the year, I guess, you know, like from kind of when we came, when we, like I was on tour with them when we came in the middle of the tour, we came home and right, pretty soon right. after that, they started doing living room concerts and stuff. And yeah. I, never really, I never really dug it. I mean, I liked, it was fun to see them and like actually see humans, but, sure. Sure. Um, and to play some music, which was nice, yeah. but the whole, the whole thing of like having an audience sort of, and sort of not. No, you know what I did do that I really liked? I went out and I did curbside song deliveries. Oh, you did? I did. Yeah. And that turned, that was really fun. That was like, you know. So how did that work? I just decided like when we were, I just one day I was like, you know, if like the Amazon truck can come to the end of my lawn, (laughs) you know, and this guy can get out and put a box down. I can get out and sing a song to someone from like, you know, 
40 feet away and just sing really loud, you know, at the end of their driveway. Yeah, you can belt it out. So, <laughs> so I did it and it was actually, it was fantastic. That was like my brightest, one of the bright spots when, when in that first, you know, six months when things were really shut down. Yeah. Um, so was, that, was that something you organized yourself or did you have somebody like, like yeah. putting that together for you? No, I just put it on Instagram and people signed up. Cool. And we pick like, you know, we can only do like 10 or 12 houses. We got tons of requests for it. Actually, it actually turned out to be something, to tell you the truth, I, I, I uh, the idea came to me because I wanted, it was as selfish as it was giving because I wanted to, I just needed to move. I couldn't stand what was going on and the isolation of it, which is of course is exaggerated when you're out in the country, like up here mm -hmm. in Woodstock, you know, I, it became, it was really, really quite heavy actually and very profound. And I ended up singing to a lot of, you know, I had a couple of nurses who were on the front lines of it in those first few months, like yeah. in the middle of April when everything was just going down, who were leaving their shifts at the hospital and coming home to their lawn to hear a few songs and then going back to their um, work. And also it was a lot of, it was all obviously regional, uh, local, just within the Woodstock kind yeah. of surrounding area. So it was a lot of people that were familiar with the rambles and my right. dad's music and knew me from that. And so there was this familiarity and community. So when we would sing songs from that songbook, it was like, it, it was heavy. It mm -hmm. was heavy. It was humbling. Since you mentioned Woodstock, I, I'd love to kind of hear a bit about the actual, the, the place that you're in. Like, um, I know you spent a lot of time in New York City growing up and stuff, but now that you're living back in Woodstock, can you tell me a bit about the community there? It, to me, it's fascinating. Like, I've never spent much time there. I've done gigs at um, some, there was like a big theater, well, not huge, but like a sort of a mid-sized theater that I played. I, I don't know what it's called. I'm sure you know it, sort of in town. And then there's a theater probably. Probably, yeah. And then and then being at the at the barn is incredible. But it kind of like turns Woodstock into a bit of a mythic uh place. And there's an there's an amazing music scene there. And I guess there always has been, but now these days it seems like surrounding you and the barn, there's sort of like this young group of people who a lot of them play with you and I've seen them around and and um you know in your band and stuff, but but there's this whole community going on. I, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and, and what it means to you. And maybe we can branch that into the recording of your last album, which I know you, you did in Woodstock. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Woodstock is like, there is this vibrant, rich and very um, uh, varied, um, diverse musical community here that's, that has really strong roots. A lot of the people that are here have family roots like I do, you know, like Mike and Ruthie, Mike Miranda and Ruth Unger, her dad, Jay Unger, founded the Ashokan Center. And he's like a, you know, renowned uh, folk musician. And he and his wife, Molly, have a whole thing and they've built a community there. So Mike and Ruthie are great examples of local, you know, huge talents that are holding this legacy and carrying it forward. Um, they jumped to mind as the first people because they also, with the Ashokan Center, which is a place that holds a lot of seminars and classes and all of these opportunities for people to learn music, that's a real hub for musicians to kind of gather there and find each other. Is that in, is that in town as well? 
Yeah, it's about 20, it's 15 minutes outside of Woodstock. Okay. And they, they also really hold a lot of the old time music and bluegrass um, and traditional uh, genres um, and musical styles. So you've got Mike and Ruthie, you have Lee Falco, who's an incredible young singer and drummer, whose dad, Tony Falco, just passed away, sadly, to COVID. But oh. Tony started this club called The Falcon, which is 40 minutes south of Woodstock, that also, much like the Ashokan Center and my dad's place, The Barn, The Falcon also has, you know, decades-long history, since 1984, I think, of being a home for musicians. All these places were built by artists for artists. So Yeah, you can tell. Yeah, and every, like, The Falcon also very much came to, um, has always been a home for jazz musicians, too. So you have these, those are three places that first popped, that come to mind that musicians knew was a home base and a place that they could go work and get a payday and meet community and meet friends. And um, it's just it's just an amazing thing. I mean, the list of, of singers and players here it's crazy, isn't it? On and on and on. We've got Elizabeth Mitchell and Dan Littleton and Lee Falco and Connor and Brandon and Will and all those the, the those guys there. And it's just um Does Zach Janikian live in, Zach in Woodstock? Lives he does, in okay. Woodstock. Uh, Marco Benevento is here. Oh yeah. He used to live Dorsey here. is up here. Yeah, it's a really strong community and people really take care of each other and we come together, actually, this weekend, we're doing The Sounding Joy, which is Elizabeth Mitchell's uh, annual Christmas concert that we do at the barn. And that's kind of become the place once a year when you touch down and see a lot of people. Okay. Jackson Kinchelow and Arlie Kinchelow from Sister Sparrow are up here. There's a lot of, and they also grew up in Margaretville, which is an hour north. So you have a lot of deeply rooted players up here, which is nice. Right. And what, what, what is the appeal? Just like the proximity to New York obviously is huge and it's like, it's close to there. So there's like work and there's transportation available, but also it's like, there's kind of a magical feel up there in the Catskills, right? I mean, I think that the appeal was that musicians could come here and afford to rent a place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's cool. There's a there's a, there's a art, there's a long history of an artistic community here, right? And predating yeah. the whole Woodstock 1960s thing, there were um, some incredible. Um, the Maverick and Birdcliff were artist colonies that were developed at the turn of the century, going into the early 1900s. Oh. So there's actually quite a long history of painters and sculptors and writers coming up here, and and I think that that has always drawn a lot of artists here yeah. um and i'm glad we're talking about it too because i have to say you know since covid the culture and the tone of this town has shifted dramatically pitching more towards a place like aspen colorado Ooh. than an artist colony which Ooh. is happening in a lot of places yeah. um and you know money's not a bad thing at all except that it shapes a town very specifically. And I think people have to be really intentional about what they're shaping with what they can give financially to a new place. So, you know, it's uh, unfortunately Woodstock has lost 
it's it's not anymore a place where someone can come, someone who's working as a working bass player in a band or a working singer in a band, yeah. who's making a living, but not flying around in a jet plane. You know, this, right. this is not anymore a place where that tribe of people can come. And is it just, just, is it just too expensive there now to, to rent places? And um, yes, we have 40,000 new residents that have flooded up here from New York city during the pandemic. Wow. And what happened is that, where do they all go? Well, they all bought these places that are falling apart and they paid like $250,000 over the asking price just to kibosh oh and God. kind of negate the negotiations and just get what they needed. And a lot of it was done out of this desperate panic to escape the city, which I understand. Right. But what's happened is that it has flooded, the, you know, the, the level of inflation is, is beyond measure. And so- Brutal. It's changed here drastically. And you notice it in the, it's in the town. And... Anybody talks about. Really? <laughs> the town, yeah. <laughs> well, because it's sort of one of the defining things of that town, right? It's not like Nashville, which has sort of experienced the same thing, but it's like, you know, a big city and it's sort of expected. For the Nashville thing to happen here is like, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. But we're all making it work. Yeah. I have meditated myself into a very positive place about it and talking with you and reminding myself and being able to share with hopefully maybe a few musicians here, this podcast, um, I'm assuming mostly it's musicians that listen to your, to it's a your lot podcast. Of musicians, and, yeah. yeah it's but not, like, not entirely. But we have to, you know, just reminding myself and you and our community that we've got to, you know, take care of each other and celebrate celebrate the triumphs that we have in these communities we've built probably very similar to nashville in a way mm -hmm. yeah. yeah how long have you lived there any anyway like i i know like all through the olabel days you were sort of in new york city right yeah well i was born up here and lived here um off and on as a kid but then lived in new york city from age 10 up but woodstock was always my home base because my dad was always up here yeah. my mom my mom is actually from woodstock she was born here in 1946 so i wow, have no kidding long roots here she's legit she's legit which makes me half legit <laughs> <laughs> um so let's talk about the new record which i love um there's it's just such a deep sounding record and your voice sounds incredible and as expected but it but it's like really i don't know there's seems like a lot of artists um as they go and age and change musically and stylistically and artistically that um they don't necessarily continue to blossom in the way that I feel like you are. It feels like your writing keeps getting stronger. Your singing keeps getting stronger. Oh, um, thank you. So yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about that record. So what made you decide to do it up in Woodstock? First of all, I guess, I mean, obviously you're living there, but you've made records other places. So was it something like a conscious decision to kind of like bring it on home in a way? No, it was, I've, I've confessed to this in other interviews and I'll confess to you as well. It was completely financial. Oh, really? <laughs> I wanted to go to Mexico. Oh. I wanted to go, like, I wanted to do something exotic and amazing yeah. that involved airplane. I wanted like a place, a house with a pool and the sure. sun shining down on me and no kids and no dogs. I wanted this fantasy of like, what, what hip people do when they have mm -hmm. a huge budget to go make a record. And, and 
I say that, you know, I always hesitate a little bit when I confess that because I don't want it to make me sound jaded because I understand <laughs> how incredible it is that I have the barn to record at. So in full confession to my musician friends that might be listening to us, it was practical. <laughs> it was cash money <laughs> and it was practicality. Yeah. And then... I was completely humbled by the experience of going back into that room, which I've sang in thousands of times since I was a kid. And in the last few years, I mean, every month I'm doing some gig or part of something there. And then to walk into the room and make the, with the intention and the effort of recording, I was just reminded of how very special that space is. And when it's quiet, and there's it no way, and you're connecting with all the corners of those beams and stuff, man. It's, it was really special. And also something that was interesting is that it was as special for Josh and Phil Cook and Tony Mason and Michael Libramento and Dan Goodwin, who engineered the record, the whole, all of us coming into that space were those are all guys that have had experience in there too, right? They know it. No, they nope. didn't know it. They didn't. Well, Tony Mason knew it. He okay. was the only one who had had experience there. Phil so, Cook hasn't played a bunch there and stuff? He played there once. He played oh, okay. the live show, but no yeah. one had, had recorded in there. Okay. And, um, everybody was kind of, everybody was captivated in their own way by the room it was moving people all of us you know and it, that was it's interesting it is a it is a special experience being there like for me as an outsider that and somebody that you know like has a huge amount of respect for for the area and for that particular building you know it's like it, you walk in there and you feel it for you it's like you, i'm sure you like spent so much time in there you you might even take it for granted in some ways but i did um, take it totally took it for granted and I didn't think I was taking it for granted. Like, you know, and then, and that's why I wanted to go to Mexico. Screw this place. Screw this place. So when I've been in there, like it really is set up as a concert venue. It's not really set up as a studio, although you can see how um, you could easily, you know, with the right equipment and stuff, easily make records in there. Did you have to change things around or did you kind of leave it as a, as a live um, set up to, to make your record? No, we changed things around. You know, the cool thing about that room is that, well, it's very live. So you can't, you have to be prepared to make a record with a lot of, with some bleed and a lot of room sound yeah. in it. There's a lot of cool little places in the room where you get different, yeah. you get different overtones um, and different sounds to the, to the instruments. So we set up in a semicircle with, um, I, I, I put my, they built like a little vocal booth just of gobos with an open top kind of facing yeah. the stage. And then the guys were in the semicircle. Tony was down on the floor a little bit. We, we had a tight setup close to each other. And yeah. I did, I did. So you, so you were sitting sort of like where the audience would sit during a show? Yeah, a little, just, just like where that first front row would be. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and then I also had a microphone set up in front of that that partitioned place and some of the tracks we cut just on the floor, which was the best because oh, nice. they were so quiet that I just sang in the room with no phones, just into a microphone. And that was, 
Beautiful. That was amazing. I love that. Yeah, you can really hear the room in the in the recording. Yeah. And so, the, I mean, I can't totally picture everything, but the way that I remember it is behind the stage, there's like an elevated sort of like at some point it was probably like a full on control room, but yeah, now it's sort of. Right. That's where the console still is. So it is like a control room, a raised control room. And for people who haven't been there, this is a big not a big, it only holds 250 people, but it's a barn, you know, a post and beam barn. So there's an elevated part that would have been one of the haylofts kind of, right? That's right. where the console sits and that looks down onto the stage. Um, but there's no glass there. So again, it's just wide open. So so he's probably he's probably engineering you through headphones rather than speakers. Is that what's happening? Yes. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. And nothing's happening in the balcony, like you just left the balcony. Left the balcony open and also the cupola, which is the high, you know, there's that little upstairs. We actually used to be able to walk up there, but you can't get up there anymore. The kind oh, yeah. of very tip top of the, of the, of the um, post and beams up there. That was empty. And it was, we had a, there is a mic that, that hangs from there. So yeah, it was just amazing. So the core is you. So Phil Cook plays like all most of the electric guitar stuff. No, all the keyboards. Oh, okay. Yeah, Josh so, Hoffman played all the electric guitars and guitars. And he, and he was the producer, or you guys co-produced, or what was that situation? No, Josh produced it. Okay. Yeah, I don't know much about him. Like I know I know him recently through like the Taylor Swift stuff that he's done. But where where does he come from? Josh is, well, Josh has worked for a long time with a lot of different bands. Um, and he is from New York and he and his wife, Annie, she's a fantastic bass player and musician and oh. they're just wonderful people. And he is, I mean, I, I honestly can't say enough good things about Josh. He is just a really special guy. He's just a special one. And um, he, has a way of focusing everything and getting everybody to to kind of he just finds what's true in the room and he just has a way of pointing it out even his language or his way of speaking it just feels even from when we started with pre-production me and him with songs i would go down to brooklyn and we did a bunch of demos yeah. of these songs beforehand some of which became the track actually there's a few songs that we demoed down there that we then had um, like Wait for the Rain uh, mm -hmm. and the song called Calling Home. Uh, we did that down there and then had people lay, lay stuff over it. Everything with him was just, we were just finishing each other's sentences. It was so quick and fun and kind of um, electrified our conversations and our understanding of where we wanted, you know, catching the songs as they went. So yeah, he and I've seen him do that in other musical situations where he's just he's just really good at at finding what's true in the room. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Did you guys talk much about like the overall sonic concept of what you were going for or was it just like a totally natural thing like just bring yeah. the people in and we'll make it happen? He want yeah, he the only thing we really talked about is that he wanted my playing and singing and songwriting to lead the thing. And he wanted the players and the filling in to be following that. So, okay. so like I played drums on one or two things. I thought, I thought I could tell that. Simple P, you know, my, just what I do, which is not, you know, I can't do what Tony Mason and Phil Cook do, but just simple 
planting of it so that my time and my intention and stuff was in the songs. And that's what he wanted to lead with that. So we just kind of had that in mind and then shaped the songs and found batches of songs that felt true and tried them. What songs do you play drums on? Wait for the Rain. Yeah. And well, Tony Mason overdubbed all the cool stuff, like the big tom rolls and all that. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm playing the backbeat. Yeah. Did you sing while you were playing those? I think I sang a scratch vocal down in Brooklyn, but I think I might have overdubbed vocal on that. Okay. Um, Yeah, and I can't think of what else. Oh, we cut, you know, we cut a song that Allie and I wrote um, that we did with the Capital Sunrays, but we didn't end up, I didn't end up using it on the record um, because I... It just didn't, I didn't get it where I wanted it. And um, right. I think that song's just going to belong in that, that band in the, yeah. the Sunrays. Yeah. Um, and I played drums on that one when we cut that. Yeah. In that situation where you've got another drummer, what makes you either say, hey, I should play drums on this or, or makes Josh say, hey, why don't you play the drums? I don't know. Just <laughs> whatever. Josh. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't put it, you know, he just, you know, we were just down there, uh, well, actually, Wait for the Rain, I had written some of that at the drum set. So maybe that was part of it, too, because I think I had sent him a little demo of like a scratch of it. And I was just kind yeah. of sometimes I'll do that. So maybe. So know. do you actually use the drums as a writing tool sometimes? I do. Yeah. Wicked. How does that how does that work? You just sit down and start playing and, and singing while you're playing? Yeah. Like sometimes if I have a melody in mind. Yeah. Sit, but I'll just sit down and if I find the, a beat that feels right to it, then the melody kind of takes quicker shape. Yeah. And then, I mean, often when I see you play live, you're playing the mandolin. Is that, do you consider that to be your main instrument or am I just like well, seeing you on all the mandolin shows? <laughs> That's funny. No, God, no. I can okay. play the mandolin. I, I beg to differ. I, thank you. I, you know what? I, I would say that I have gotten good at rhythm, if there is such a thing, at ro- rhythm, rock and roll rhythm mandolin playing. Totally. That's all I can do. And I can't solo on it. <laughs> I can't play bluegrass and I can't do much of a tremolo, but, but um, I've been enjoying mandolin a lot since COVID. I, I'm more interested in it. And I practice little dorky fiddle tunes that I can hardly play, but I, I'm, I'm like enjoying it. And, um, you know, I play everything just enough to kind of write and get by and hold the time for myself so I can find my way in as a singer. So I guess vo- I would imagine, I would say my voice is my main instrument. Okay. Yeah. Is there, is there one of them though that you pref- that you gravitate towards when you're actually writing? I write on all three, piano, mandolin, okay. and it's pretty equally, actually, I would say. And what's the writing process for you like these days? I'd imagine it's changed a bit over the years, or have you always done it the same? And like, are you like a lyrics first person or anything? Or it's a li- lyrics come last, and they're my biggest struggle. Yeah, and I'm still hoping every day that I get better at it. <laughs> you know, melodies yeah. come in, melodies come come in easily for me. Yep, you can tell. Um, yeah. Sometimes melodies come in for me for other singers. Like I had that whole, this song called Ran the Wilds. I wrote the whole thing for Allie to sing and I had her voice in mind and the whole melody just dropped in. 
<laughs> and I wrote the whole thing for her. And then, and I didn't have words and she listened to my demo and listened, had me sing it over and over again and sat there with a notebook and wrote down what came to her. Yeah. And then she wouldn't say that. She was like, you have to sing it. So <laughs> that's, you know, I think words are, words are, are slippery. And do you, do you get hung up like with blockage in that way? Like, do you get to the point where you've got what you feel like could be a song and you just can't get the words together? Yeah. I have like yeah. 40 of those. Yeah. Okay. Do you? <laughs> well, yeah, I do all yeah. the time. Yeah. Me yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, it's a struggle for me too. I feel the, uh, pretty much the same. Like I find the music stuff comes pretty easily and melodies are, you know, a dime a dozen really. Like I, I would never have any issues coming up with something, whether it's good or not, I don't know. But, but you know, just it, that feels like it's a constant tap that I can just turn on and off. Whereas lyrics, it's a whole different ballgame. Me too. And if I'm, if I'm really being honest with myself and, and facing the mirror, you know, I think too that I was just reading the, um, there's a book on poetry by Mary Oliver that she wrote, an instructional book on poetry that I just kind of started. Oh. And the very first chapter has some really beautiful reminders and, and descriptions of how to meet those words, how to find them and how to show up for them. And she, I mean, I can't say it in the language is as beautiful as she used, but to paraphrase, it was something like, you know, that there's a shyness that are, that muse and those words are, has its own entity that's shy, that kind of is, is afraid of us not meeting it. So we have to kind of show up with the discipline and the presence to like meet it every day. And then eventually the shy muse comes yeah, yeah. towards us, you know? So I think about that too, that I, I'm hoping to get more disciplined about that in the next few months here as I try to finish up some material. And, and you do, I don't know how much exactly, but you definitely do co-writing. Um, is that something where when you do it, do you kind of lean on people to bring more lyric? Than... Definitely. That's always okay. what it is. Uh, oh, okay. So you actually bring in well, like complete, songs or melodies or whatever and then pretty kind much of, yeah yes pretty much although with with well with elizabeth you know elizabeth zeman who i wrote wait for the rain and renegade heart with her she you know she's just a genius musician and she i had some chords and then she flushed she added a couple and changed a couple things so that it was it was a, a deeper um deeper structure, I think, quarterly, sure. But then other songs, yeah, I've brought in the whole thing and then. You did something with Mary Gaucher, right? On this record? Yes. Yeah. Was that a co-write as well or did, did yeah. you? Okay. That was a co-write, yeah. Same kind of thing? Like, did you have a song and she provided lyrics basically? The song finished. Oh, wow. The melody and the chorus and everything. And um, the verses, the chorus, the chords. And then she and I sat together and did the lyrics together in Nashville. We wrote that song like six years ago now, five years ago. So do you find that you'll just use like absolute nonsense to get through a song like in the early stages? Or are you just singing gibberish and, and yes. maybe something comes out of that? I, I don't know if you've watched that Beatles Get Back movie that just came out. but it's it Oh, it's so wild to see like, you know, they're singing. Uh, there's some songs that come in pretty fully formed, but a lot of them they're just singing like the most ridiculous lyrics over what are classic songs now you know like and it's funny to see that that process and some people i know like do that whole thing of just basically like 
shaping words out of nothing and things pop into their head. Right. Um, but for other people, it's, you know, they, they don't like doing that. So, yeah, it's still, it's still, a, it's still a mystery. I'm going to pick up that Mary Oliver book again after this conversation and start to, it's also life distractions. Like I love my kids more than the world itself. And I, there's nothing I love more than being a mom, but I need to like get gone. <laughs> I really need to make this trip to Mexico yeah. or at least to like the Adirondacks or something. <laughs> Something's got to give. I can't finish anything, you know? Yeah. So how, how did you manage to, like when you do make a record and, and basically when you're do, when you're working at the barn, it's kind of like being at home essentially. Like yeah. I know you don't live in the barn, but it's, pretty close. Right. And, and, uh, like, how do you navigate that? How long did you spend making the record? And we only did four days. Wow. And they went to my ex-husband's house for four nights, you know, set that up, had the, had my puppy go to the dog sitter for four nights and just like focused. Yeah. tried to focus. And was it pretty magical? Like you guys just went in and, and got sounds pretty quickly, like four days is quick. There's not a lot of room to, um, be messing around in there it was so magical it was mm-hmm. one of the one of the one of the deepest experiences i've had yet recording a record interesting I felt so um i don't know I, I i don't know i just was at a certain place you know you come to those places in your life where you kind of stop and you look back and you can see where you've been mm-hmm. and that happens to us as musicians i think and i was just in one of those places i was landed back from the road and and have gotten to a certain place with my kids and as a mother and with my patients and my 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 tools with that and and i think some surrender to the the hustle and the grind of touring mm-hmm. and sort of looking at that and i don't know there was a setting aside of what had felt hard and felt like a struggle Mm-hmm. For me, when I stepped into that record where I just kind of felt like I was surrendering to wanting to say something and 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 wanting to do it honestly and yeah. revealing more, and it just felt good to do that. It was really enriching. Awesome. Yeah. One aspect that really jumps out to me, I mean, you've, you always have a lot of vocals and a lot of harmonies and stuff like that, and I know that that's something that comes really easily to you, yeah. although, I mean, you put your time in to to develop that, that skill set. Um, but, uh, I'm just curious about particularly, you know, like a song like sweet mama or something on the new record where there's really cool, like dense harmonies. I don't know if that's all you, or did you have other people doing some of that? You know, you know, who helped me, uh, really get that in shape for sweet mama was Phil cook. Oh yeah. We, We, we were fooling around with that song. Phil came for a day, uh, two days of production and writing as well. And we spent one day here at my house kind of writing songs and, and, and talking and connecting. And then we went down to Josh's place in Brooklyn and we were singing that sweet mama um, and finding a way to do that, to do that. Hands are over us. And that was, that was kind of fun to do that with him. He was, that, that was very much a fill, you know, <laughs> Do you have a lot of that stuff worked out when you go into the session or does that 
kind of come like after you've done the, the basic tracking, you're like, okay, let's hop in and do a bunch of vocal layers on this. We did the harmonies afterwards because I sang most of the backgrounds myself and then Phil yeah. and Michael uh, Libramento folded in on some stuff. So we yeah. did like, um, excuse me, we did the backgrounds on, yeah, on, we, those were overdubs in the room. This show is brought to you by the good folks at Isotope, who make incredible plug-in software for any music or dialogue recording situation. Among other things, they make a very unique suite of software called RX, which you can use to surgically repair almost any kind of issue in a recording. Whether it's removing electrical hum, unwanted noise, vocal plosives, or almost anything you can throw at it. I use Isotope RX on every mix in one way or another, and I love that I can get in there on guitar tracks that I'm doing and running through my crazy old tube amps and get rid of the hum and noise without affecting the actual tone of the guitar. You can buy their plugins outright or get a subscription to keep up to date on all their latest versions. Right now, they're offering listeners a 10% discount on any of their plugins when you use the code SOULPOD10 at checkout. So head on over to isotope.com soulpod and you'll see the links right there to get the discount or an extended 30-day trial of their subscription service of Music Production Suite Pro. We're also brought to you this season by Black Mountain Picks. These are unique spring-loaded thumb picks that are super comfortable and adaptable. I've been using them for a couple years now and I absolutely love them. They come in medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and with regular or extra-tight spring tension. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. Thanks to our other sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor. They're known for guitar effects pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that sound amazing, both on stage and in the studio. I use their Sonebender Fuzz pedal, the Moore pedal, and the Swindle Overdrive pedal all the time in sessions and live on stage. You can find them at uniontone.com. And thanks to Spectra 1964. For over 50 years, Spectra 1964 has established a reputation of creating some of the most innovative recording equipment on the market today. From the legendary V610, C610, and 611 complimenter units to the new 500 series lunchbox mic pre's and EQs, Spectra 1964 continues the legacy of providing incredible recording products for the home or professional studio. Check them out at spectra1964.com. And finally, the Hen House Hang. It's a four-day immersive recording experience right here with me at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville on September 19 to 22, 2022. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll put you up in a groovy hotel, feed you some glorious food, show you the ropes of recording roots and Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info on that at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds very live, but but also, yeah, I mean, I thought I was hearing your voice in there as the as the backup singer too on a lot of it. So, yeah, you know, I just, again, it was, that was, that was a money decision. And do you find that you, that you end up recording songs on the instrument that you write them on? I'm always curious about that too, with people that play a bunch of different instruments, like terminal B, I think you play mandolin on that. Well, do yeah. you write that on the mandolin? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I did play that on mandolin and I can barely, I have, that is one I've been practicing. Cause I don't know what, oh, yeah. like I'm doing the weirdest finger picking thing, which sounds really cool when I'm by myself on my couch in my living room. Yeah. And every time I get on stage with that song, I still, it's like my cross. You bear. struggle with it? Really? Why? 
mean, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's so stupid. It's like if I don't have, I've, I'm so blessed to have all these amazing guitar players that, that I've gotten <laughs> to play with. And I always just kind of look at them like a deer in the headlights. Like, come yeah. on. You know, <laughs> pick, up the, pick up the slack. Yeah. So the space itself, the barn, can you give me a little bit of, of history of that? Like, I know that it burnt down, right? Like in the, I don't know if that was in the nineties or something. Yeah, it burnt down in um, uh, 91, I think. Okay. And then was rebuilt and pretty much built exact. Well, was made slightly bigger. And my dad had bluestone walls separating the three. You know, it's your basic barn structure with like the, the big um, pitched main middle room and then two yeah. additions onto it. Yeah. So he has bluestone as a separation between those rooms in case there were a fire it would stop. Oh, I see. That's what it's for. Yeah. And and it and it sounds, you know, he and Garth dialed in the sound too. It just it's a beautiful sounding room. We're actually in the process right now of getting a whole new PA system and monitors, which is gonna be great. That was really those are like 20 years old at this point and kind yeah. of on their way out. Yeah. So I'm excited to hear the room with a with a system that that um, accompanies it the right way. So the original incarnation, like the original building, was it very similar to the one that's there now? Yeah. Historically, it it was. I don't know if it was meant as a recording studio or meant as a venue, but but the venue thing has sort of taken on this big life since the ramble started in yes. when it, whatever year that was was at. Um, is that something that you are like really focusing on turning that into a, a venue more or could it be? Well, you know, it can be all of them. I mean, venues just, yeah. it's just easier to, it's difficult to make money running a recording studio. And at this point, you know, musicians are making albums for their own joy at this point. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, you're making something you can't sell. Right. So that's going to change the shape of that, which is why a lot of people are doing things at home, I think. But yeah. um, uh, he always intended it to be both a recording studio and a venue. He was, a, my dad was a, was a true visionary. He was a really, really smart man and somewhat prescient in that, you know, he, he, he had an intuition and an understanding of where things were going. So like, for instance, this is way before MTV and, and music videos even began. This was just in the, in the, before that was even a thought in anyone's mind, he actually built the barn specifically with windows at a certain angle so that you could get a crane with a TV camera, with a film camera to come in and record what was happening in the in the control room area and on the yeah. live, you know, where the where the band would be set up. So he always saw it as a multi-purpose room. Oh wow. So did he he built the original one from the ground up? Like it wasn't it wasn't a, it wasn't just like a barn that was on the property? No, no, he built it. You know, my dad was really interested in architecture. Oh. Really interested in architecture. In fact, I think that if he hadn't have pursued drumming, that probably would have been what he did. No kidding. He loved to study Frank Lloyd Wright. And oh, wow. he loved simple barn structures and studying the kind of simplistic building structures that had specific measurements and he knew them by heart and kind of studied it. And he designed the barn and then of course had had builders come and 
do it. He didn't know he wasn't a carpenter, but yeah, but he had the vision for it. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. Your upbringing obviously is a unique one, but, but as far as like your, your uh, abilities on, on instruments, was that something that was like encouraged for you as a, as a kid by your parents or were they just, there was drums and mandolins and pianos around the house and you, you kind of gravitated towards them or what was that experience like for you growing up in that environment? Well, you know, I think like, like any of us that play, you know, you know, from a very young age, like you just kind of, it's what you can do and Mm -hmm. it's what you love. Right. So I was playing piano at a very young age and, and, um, and always, always sang. And uh, so music, music is just what I could do and what I was good at, what I liked doing. Um, And then of course, you know, my dad and my mom were both really encouraging of that and encouraged me with my lessons and learning more about it. With mandolin, my dad gave me a mandolin when I was in, in my or middle, like maybe around 25, 26 years old. And he showed yeah. me just enough chords and a couple blues riffs that I started to kind of use it more as if I was playing rhythm guitar. So that's how I learned okay. mandolin, which is why I play in a kind of weird, extremely unsophisticated. <laughs> well, that was his vibe on the mandolin too, right? I mean, he wasn't like a virtuoso player, but he had a thing. No, he had a thing. Yeah, he had a thing. And um, and drums, I, you know, I don't know how drums, I, I, to be completely honest, I just could always do it. I just remember sitting down and maybe having never sat down at the drum set when I was a teenager and joking around with some friends and started playing, I think I was playing like a Go-Go's song and started playing it and laughing and singing it because we're, you know, to make a joke to them. But I kind of realized in the moment, I was like, oh, this is just, hey. I could just do do it. Yeah. Was there always drum kits around the house? Or like, did your dad play drums a lot in the house? Uh, no, but there was always the setup there. I mean, the barn was right. always set up with instruments there. Yeah. 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 And there was always a mandolin and a guitar around. Yeah. So is that where you grew up? Like, were you actually on the property of the, that's, that was where you yeah. grew up? Yeah. Like if okay. you're on stage and you're playing at the barn, you look up at the lofts up, like there's the soundboard is up at that first loft. And then there's a loft to your left and right. My bedroom was the one on the left. Oh, you actually lived in the barn? Yeah. Okay. I thought there was like a house on the property that you lived in maybe or something. Oh, oh you, you actually oh. lived in there. Amazing. Yeah. His home was on the, there's a whole other side, a whole other house behind where the fireplace is. Like where you're, if you're standing on the stage looking and the fireplace is at the end wall beyond that, there's a, there's a house on the other side. Okay. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the process of, of doing Dirt Farmer with your dad. I mean, that seems like, I don't know if you'd worked with him like in a musical context before that or not, but it's such a unique it's an extremely unique project in that it's somebody that, you know, people hadn't heard a recording of properly in a long time. And then out of the blue, like it could have gone so wrong if it was in the wrong hands. But it feels like by keeping it in the family, um, yeah. you know, maybe you could sort of explain your your role in the whole thing and how you like, did it take a lot of convincing to make that happen? And, and what was that experience like for you working with him in that context? Yeah. Um, you know, that's the only album I have ever co-produced and or produced. And um, I just knew, I knew what we were trying to do. And so I trusted myself in a way because I don't have skills as a producer. I wouldn't trust myself to do that for someone else. Um, but in this case, it was these, he wanted to take all of these songs from his childhood and record mm -hmm. them and kind of document his, his musical beginnings um and so we had always we had talked about that for years about recording all of these old family songs that his parents had taught him or that he had learned in church or had learned along the way um and it was uh it was a it was a really beautiful thing to be part of it it was i learned so much getting to do that with larry campbell yeah. And what, you know, extremely accomplished and experienced producer and getting to stand side by side with him. And he's very generous with that. He really allowed me to hold the space and occupy that space with him and to contribute what I could and and take in what I was taking in from him. So it was it was a it was a beautiful, enriching experience. And um, I'll tell you something cool about that time is that. I was down living in Brooklyn at the time and would come up to do the record. And, you know, when we would record and the, the phone would ring and I, my dad would go, honey, I woke up and I had a dream and I got the whole second verse came to me. So he started to dream and you know, he was trying to remember these songs, these wow. old songs. And they started to come back to him in dreams. And he was dreaming of his mom and dreaming of his family. And it was, it was really special. It was, it was powerful. I bet. Yeah. yeah. Was he, had he already had cancer? Like, was he already battling it at that point? Yeah, he had, he had completed his treatments for throat cancer and was in remission, but his voice was still just coming back. So okay. this album was also not, not only was it the, um, the cellular memory of these songs and his childhood and his musical beginnings, but it was also him repairing his voice and slowly starting to sing again. Really incredible too. So we would be waiting for him to come in and cut a vocal. I'll tell you which vocal to listen to and anyone who's hearing our conversation, if you really want to want to dig something 
what I, we all felt was one of the heaviest ones that he did is called Great Train Robbery. Mm-hmm. And we were waiting for him to come in and cut the vocal. And it was half an hour went by and then an hour and two hours, three hours passed when he was supposed to come in. And finally, three, three and a half hours later, he walked in. He was like, I'm ready. And I realized he had been pacing. The, he, he liked to pace and practice and he had been singing it in his head. Oh, yeah. Floor, in, his, in his living room. And he came in and stood in front of that microphone and he cut that vocal live and sang the whole thing down. And it was, I I can't describe to you how we were all feeling standing in the room. Standing very still, very quiet, didn't want to squeak the floorboards or make any noise and listening to his voice occupy that space and sing that vocal. That that great train robbery is really one to- uh, That's the one. Study, yeah. And what was what was Larry Campbell's relation like? Had he played with your dad a bunch at that point, or was he kind of new to the situation? Well, he was. He had known my dad in some context, and they had a just a good, you know, friendship and 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 connection. And um, was he still playing with Dylan at that point? Is that he what just left Dylan? Okay. And um, I don't remember how. I guess we had reconnected with Larry through Olivelle, and then. That had reconnected him with my dad. And then it just, I just knew pretty quickly that he was, we just knew that it was the right fit. Yeah. So we just knew, we just knew pretty much right away that, um, that Larry was, it was just the right fit. He understood. I could see that he very much understood what we were trying to do, what my dad was trying to do. And he, um, he was really inspired Larry was inspired by it and it just kind of happened organically. Was it the kind of thing where you maybe weren't setting out to actually make a record and it was just like sort of a document at the time or was there an actual plan to make this record? We were were setting out to make a record for sure. But, you know, this was before like things were just coming back for my dad. So we weren't like there wasn't a label, a manager and a plan and a budget. We were just kind of climbing out of this this, you know, isolated, intense experience of him having come through cancer and, and, Mm -hmm. and just, you know, coming back from bankruptcy. And it was a very quiet, clear musical intention with no infrastructure in place. And so it took someone generous and open like Larry to see that and not care about that and to know how to push it forward. What was the core band for that record? That was like you're you're playing on it and singing on it, of course, and uh, Larry's playing a bunch of instruments. And w- was there other people that were there for the whole thing? Yeah, Byron Isaacs plays bass. Oh, yeah. for the whole thing. And he was in Olabel, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he was in the Ram Band too for about ten years after Olabel. Yeah, Byron and Larry, my dad, uh, Larry's wife Teresa, and I did all the oh yeah singing, and um, yeah. Brian Mitchell played keyboards and accordion on some of it and um that was a really special special record yeah it's an amazing record prior to that uh the ramble had started and my understanding of the ramble was that it was sort of a way to like get him out of some financial problem i don't know what the i don't know what all the details are but but it was like it was kind of started out of a out of a need more than anything else right i mean it did kind of start off as a rent party but for perspective (laughs) you know 
at that point, the rent that was owed to get it off the auction block was like, you couldn't do it. You'd need a concert at Madison Square Garden to really that should happen. So oh my God. it was, you know, rent party slash let's pay the electric bill before the bank takes the house back kind of a right. party um, would be more accurate. And, and also it was his kind of, you know, it was him it was like he had no other choice but to like what can you do when you're that when you're put into that deep of a corner where you mm-hmm. don't have your vo- you don't have the thing that you made money with right he didn't have his voice oh he, he couldn't he couldn't sing at all at that point right yeah because oh. he lost yeah he he for for a few years he couldn't hardly speak he would speak in a whisper because the yeah. he had throat cancer which you know the radiation kind of ravaged his vocal cords um yeah. So it was really kind of a a a, a letting go to just mm-hmm. kind of have like fuck it at this point what else can we totally. do but play a nice play a set of music <laughs> and if we a couple hundred bucks then shit we're that much richer than we were yeah so it was, it was uh, so what was the first ramble hmm. like who played at it what what was the structure you, of it you know who played the first ramble Johnny Johnson. Who was the key the piano? Chuck yeah, Berry's piano player. Chuck Berry's piano player. Shit. And uh, I think Ola Bell. It was Ola Bell. Yeah. My dad. Uh, I don't can't remember now who was there playing. It was just like a hodgepodge of different people that came in, and you know I think we sold like twenty tickets, and it was like a really money pit. Yeah, and actually in in the in the the whole thing was put together. We were going to try it. Yeah, we hardly sold any tickets. We lost money doing it. Oh, and shit. As we realized it was going to lose money, my dad was like, I want to get Johnny Johnson up here. <laughs> it's like this kind of manic idea. Like, you know, we're already this fucked. Let's just get a plane ticket for Johnny Johnson and get him up here. Yeah. And you know, money we don't have. And everybody was, you know, my dad was definitely, that was part of his thing. And but he was inspired to want to do that. Like, that's a cool idea. Well, it was a part of him that was inspired and also slightly crazy, right? right. It was like a, like, like manic, but also prescient. And so I look, you know, it was part of his genius and maybe his, his like um, shadow side as well. Right. So yeah. He would do these big things that we couldn't afford that would dig the hole deeper. But, you know, you look back at, at, at his life and he was such a, he was such an unusual person and really such a brilliant guy. And that, that was how he dreamed of these rambles by doing shit like that, by buying a plane ticket for Johnny Johnson <laughs> and paying him a thousand dollars, putting a thousand dollars cash in his pocket. We didn't have anything, you know, yeah. him doing that, putting that in place, setting that in motion is what set the tone for what he wanted, he wanted it to be that. He wanted it to be. What was the trajectory to make it so much of a successful event? Because it didn't, it didn't languish like that for very long, right? Oh, it languished like that for a long time. Did it really? Oh, yeah. Like how long? Years. Really? So you were yeah. doing them for years and like just barely scraping through? We were doing it for years and kind of making ends meet, like not making much money. No, we were just locals would buy tickets. And then similar to the Johnny Johnson thing and this kind of um, passionate 
and wild idea on my dad's part. He was like, let's raise the ticket price to $100 a ticket. Everybody was like, what? You know, and of course we did that and hardly anyone bought tickets and he just kept at it and kept at it. And then wow. it slowly started to build. And I'll tell you how it built is because musicians started to hear about what was going on. So once you have a group of- young, Everyone wanted to play there, right? Well, everybody wanted to come see what was going down. I yeah. mean, at least a handful of drummers did. So once you start that going, right? you know, the, music, the musicians came first and then word got out. And then, you know- who, who are some of the people that were the recurring cast of characters? Like there's, from my understanding, like obviously Larry, Larry and Teresa Campbell were there a lot. Yeah, maybe, maybe always. Jimmy Weeder, Brian Mitchell. Oh, Jim Weeder, right. Foreign players at Howard Johnson, Clark Gayton, Jay Collins, Eric Lawrence, and Steve Bernstein. We had a five foreign Amazing. And so those guys are all New York guys, right? So they would drive in for the show? Everybody would drive in. We did it every weekend. And then eventually, you know, my dad did not want to take it on the road, but he understood that people had to make a little bread too. So I think he did that really for the band. Um, for the guys so that we would go on the road and make a little more money and pay everybody. But he just loved playing at home. And he was yeah. really proud of having built those rambles. Also at the time, Woodstock was not such a destination. So in the right. winter months in Woodstock, um, he actually did a lot to invigorate the financial uh the financial status of a lot of businesses up here because all of a sudden hotels were getting booked up for people that were coming up from the city and restaurants were getting, <clears throat> you know, a few more patrons in on a Saturday night. So that was, it was a cool thing that he did for the community. It had a big yeah. impact. So what, what year did it really, do you feel like it turned the corner into something that was like a successful thing all of a sudden? I didn't realize it kind of like Sat I there. can't remember. You know, it turned like anything else. It turned the corner when enough celebrities came, and the New York Times right. wrote about it and did an article about it, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. But, but truthfully, the thing was like built by a drummer for musicians, kind of a thing that really yeah. just players knew about for yeah. years before that. Wow, it's such a it's such a cool idea. But yeah. It, it obviously takes a lot of um, trial and error to get something like that off the ground. Trial and error and maybe just <laughs> oh a dash of craziness. Totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As far as your dad's story goes, is there a, I mean, there's his book, which I, I found very captivating. Is there is there something that you feel captures him? I guess the movie, the We're Not In It For The Money movie is, is a, yeah. I mean, that's an intense watch. Um, a lot of the band stuff that's out there gets very Robbie Robertson uh, biased, which is especially that last one I found really irritating in that way. Um, is there Would one really one of those? Yeah. That, documentary? Um, yes. curious, but how did it irritate you? I'm just curious. That's funny. There's just this undertone of, of making it all about him, which to me and, you know, a lot of people that are in my position of just being a big music fan and and yeah. kind of realizing Levon's impact on the the band and their sound and just having somebody, yeah, like maybe he wrote the bulk of the lyrics or whatever, but like obviously there's more to it than that. And when you hear the story being told from his side over and over again, it gets irritating. Yeah, that was, I you know, that documentary was really intense for me to watch. Was it? 
Oh my God. I made the mistake of going to see it in the movie theater um, here in Woodstock, which I just wasn't prepared. I mean, I could not leave the seat for, for a minute because it was just, you know, seeing all that footage of them when they were young. And, yeah. and uh, it's a strange thing when you lose a parent, even though it's been, it's been a while, it will be 10 years, but there's something about, and I'm sure it's this experience for anybody. Like if you haven't seen footage or photographs of them in a long time, it was just like, it's just really intense. Um, yeah. But yeah, the documentary. Well, the one thing I'll say about the documentary is that I think that, that, you know, I understand he was telling one part of, of his experience. And I think that um, I really enjoyed a lot of it, but <clears throat> I don't, I don't think this is a, was intentional at all on Robbie's part and probably comes from him just not being him and my dad's friendship having fallen off yeah. so long ago. But I think that some, some people that were being used, their interviews were being used to kind of fill in the character of who my dad was, were just people that didn't know him very uh, well. So yeah. like Dominique, Robbie's wife's interviews, I thought were fantastic, but there was a road manager whose name I can't remember right now. And they were relying on him a lot to talk about my dad and who he was and how dark he got. But I felt it, it was, that was the only thing is that it kind of, you know, it talked about one part of his life, which was one part of his life and yeah. one part of him. But you know, when someone he made, the thing about my dad is that um, he made, he had such an incredible end of his life getting sober and recovering himself recovering his relationships with his family, with me, you know, he and I had a fractured relationship and we healed that and mm -hmm. we built a blues band and we built the rambles and he enjoyed his grandchildren. He got to meet before he passed and he made those albums and built a new band that he was proud of. So there was a lot of, a lot of light and a lot of recovery in the last 15 years of my dad's life. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's always the more interesting part of the story, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of, it, it kind of gets glossed over because yeah, right. for whatever reason, it sort of gets focused on the other stuff or, or yeah. somebody else's point of view of it that doesn't really yeah. cover a lot of that stuff. Well, addiction is sad and it sabotages us, but it's when people come out of that and come out of what they come out of. That's what those are the stories that we need to share, I think. So. Yeah. As far as your artistic endeavors go, do you feel like you've made two records now in like two years, basically, or, th or I mean, pandemic aside, you were pretty prolific there. Um, do you feel like that's a continuing um, pattern? Are you getting ready to make another record or are you, I mean, you haven't really toured for this record either yet, right? Because of the timing. Because <laughs> of the timing. I got to play out a little bit, which I really loved doing. Yeah. Gosh, I love getting to sing so much. Like I know you I, do. I love it. I think that if I was given the choice, you know, I would come back a hundred more times reincarnated <laughs> as a singer. Even if I only made a hundred dollars a month, I'd come back singing because it just, I just love it so much. So yeah, hopefully more records and more gigs and just, um, I don't know, the older I get and also coming through this pandemic, like what a blessing to get to play music. It's a beautiful thing. Gosh, it's just yeah. the best. Yeah. Yeah. Just curious to jump back a couple of years quickly. Um, 
the Joe Henry record that you made, this two shall light. Um, I'm just wondering what there's kind of a, you know, like a really different sound that comes from the two records. And I'm just wondering how those two experiences between the, the latest record and the one that you did with Joe probably three or four years ago or whatever that was. Yes. How, how was that for you? Like artistically different? Well, they were so vastly different because the Joe record was all covers. I wrote one oh, right. record. So that was a really different, and you know, I have to say, excuse me, I got some, uh, you know, not some, some, some mild criticism for that, for having done an album of covers um, from a few folks, but I, I found that to be really like very challenging as a singer in a much different way. And of course, now I wish that I could go back and recut that record because I think that the stronger we get on our instrument, which hopefully we get stronger every year. I mean, that's why the old guys sound so fucking good, you know, like right. they would just keep getting better. So it was, it was, it was a challenge and it was a, it took an incredible amount of confidence to try to sing other people's melodies and try to do them justice. And, and, and I did my best, but I think I'll always think that I should try again, you know, that's, that's, that's its own skill set singing, singing cover songs and, and really embracing yourself as a vocalist in that way. Was that a conscious decision to sing other people's songs or were you just not writing at that point? You know, I think it's what Joe does. I think that's part of what Joe is great at is finding mm-hmm. songs for voices and connecting yeah. connecting the song and the voice. And so we kind of followed that because I knew that was his one of his great strengths as a producer too. So yeah. how much back and forth was there on that? Like was he sending you tons and tons of songs to check out or was it kind of a slim list that you just We met and we had conversations and yeah, we we discussed a lot of songs. I I brought a few songs in as well that he dug that we ended up co- uh, covering yeah. um, Blossom Deary's song that I wanted to do and, um, and a couple other things, but yeah, there was a lot yeah. of back and forth. We listened to a lot of stuff and kind of skinnied it down to, yeah. to yeah. 10 or 13. I guess we cut 12 or 13 songs. Yeah. That crew that made that record is sort of like the Joe Henry crew more. And, but, you, but you seem to be, always surrounding yourself with your own crew, like your own scene with the, a lot of the Woodstock players. Was that weird? Was that like a weird experience for you being around? Like, I know it's Jay Belleros. Um, was it Jennifer, Jen yeah. Condos playing bass? Yeah. She's yeah. awesome. Um, and Doyle Bramhall, right, on guitar? Yeah. Right. Uh, so what was that like? Like, the, did you know those guys? Did you play with them? Tyler Chester on keyboards, who's a oh, yeah. musician, also a great producer. Right. Um, I was very intimidated. I knew Jay and I wasn't yeah. intimidated by Jay because Jay and I had like hung a bit and done some gigs with each other. And that felt like um, you had a bond there. Yeah. We, I had some familiarity with him, but um, for as, as, as experienced as I thought I was <laughs> in this industry, when I got there, gosh, I was really intimidated. I was nervous. Really? But I had Ali and JT and Adam Minkoff come and be my choir. And that became my place where I was deriving a lot of strength from to get yeah. kind of past that and into some, some confidence about it. And Joe had left his house. So you guys were in like a big old L.A. studio, too, at that point, right? It's, yeah. 
Yeah. So that's sort of a intimidating LA studio where Frank Sinatra and Rachel, all these people had cut their, their tracks. So it felt like, you know, felt like I'd gone to Disneyland and I had to make something happen a little bit, but it was, it was also a nice challenge. I mean, that was, you know, you get thrown into those situations and all you can do is find the place in yourself that knows your value and then do your best from there. So words to live by. It's all you can do. That's right. <laughs> and don't criticize yourself after you've done your best. Just let it be. <laughs> Move on to the next. <laughs> yeah. Uh, have you have you made any plans yet to record again or you're not quite there yet? Yes, I'm 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 heading towards it. I'm definitely gonna do my next record with Josh again. I feel like we just kind of yeah. stumbled upon something that was just so effortless in terms yeah. of our chemistry and language with each other. And um, sounds like it. Yeah, so I'm gonna get uh, get some songs together and. Will you work at the barn again, or do you feel like that was something that you need to, or, or you're gonna shoot for Mexico this time? I, you know, I've been <laughs> wondering about that. I. <laughs> I don't know. I might shoot for Mexico, but I'm sure I'll end up at the barn if I take yeah. a peek at my my latest uh, latest bank statement. Looks like, <laughs> but everybody, you know, out there, just root, be rooting for me. Maybe I'll make it to my um, oh, we will and desert recording dream someday. <laughs> so, can somebody can somebody book the barn and record a record in there yeah. or not? They can. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I got to come and do that someday. Oh, you've got to, you know, for, for, if it suits the record and it suits the tone of what you're going for, there is no, it's a very special room. It, it sure is. is. There's a lot of great studios in Woodstock. I mean, there's a lot of great places up here, but the barn is definitely unique in that. Yeah. It's a magical place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Amy. Thanks for talking to me today. And I can't wait to see what you do next. I 118 and I was nervous that I wouldn't have much to say. And now here I am, you can't shut me up. <laughs> we could keep going and going and going. Yeah. Always. No, it's it's sort of a thing, you know, once you, once you start blabbing about stuff, it's it's pretty easy to fill up an, an hour of blabbing well, when you're talking about music. You make it easy. Thank you for your thoughtful questions and your ease about all of it. It's always great to see you and talk with you and get to hang. All right. Well, thanks, Amy. Keep me posted when you're coming through and we'll, uh, we'll hook up for some ice cream, maybe. I would love that. All right. All right. Thanks, Steve. Okay. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Bye. Folks, that was my conversation with Amy Helm. I sure enjoyed having it and I hope you enjoyed listening to it. I will be back in a couple of weeks for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We shall see you then. Over and out. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is produced at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee by Steve Dawson. Please remember to subscribe to the show and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors this season, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, Isotope, and Spectra 1964. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Music